Let's open our Bibles this morning to Matthew's Gospel. We're going to be finishing up chapter 7, Lord willing, today. We'll also take communion. Looking forward to that. Let's read Matthew 17, beginning in verse 15, down through the end. Notice Jesus speaking to his disciples there on the hill on the western shore of the Galilee. He says to them, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And so it was, when Jesus had ended these sayings, that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So as we look at this, uh, as we finish this chapter, Jesus, uh, we know that part of this Sermon on the Mount, which ends really after this chapter that we're reading today, Part of it was the Beatitudes, the attitudes of those who would uh, come to Christ, the attitudes of a person who uh, these things ought to be in the life of a believer. And Jesus, as he has now taught the Beatitudes to them, now he's teaching them as he has been these things that need to be, they need to be concerned about. They need to take and pay attention to issues of the heart. Issues of the heart. And so before Jesus sends out his disciples, and we'll see this later on in chapter 10, they will need to understand kingdom principles and be made aware of what they're getting into and the things that they're going to face. Because they were going to face a barrage against them. They were going to experience perhaps for the very first time real persecution, real spiritual conflict, spiritual warfare. And Jesus will send them first to the lost sheep of Israel. And Jesus, being the good shepherd, is going to teach them now to be good shepherds. Jesus is the good shepherd, but he's going to teach them how to be a good shepherd. Actually, I didn't mean to bring that up yet. Let me go back. Cute little guy, isn't he? If he didn't have a wolf inside of him. But what does a good shepherd do? Oh, wait, it came back again. Just wants to be known, I guess. But what does a good shepherd do? A good shepherd 
is one who brings his sheep to good pastures that have been inspected so that they can eat. A good shepherd watches for enemies, trying to attack the sheep. He defends the sheep from predators. He protects them from other dangers. He heals the wounded and the sick sheep. He finds and saves lost and trapped sheep. And finally, he knows them by name. In verses 1 through 6, Jesus talked about judging. And now in verses 15 through 20, he's going to be talking about, you will know false prophets by their fruits, by the things that they say, by the things that they do. And if you watch someone long enough, you will know them by their fruits or the fruit of their doings. And this sounds like doublespeak, doesn't it? Because when we think about what he had shown us about how we ought not to judge um, that, that's not what this means because we're, uh, we're not uh, passing judgment with ultimate authority about where this person or persons are going to go. But it's not wrong for us to call it what it is. Do you understand that? I mean, because that, that's what really uh, looking at a, a, the fruit of a person's life is not judging them. You're just stating the obvious. You're not judging them. When somebody goes into a, a bank and he's got a gun and he's going to rob the bank... He's a criminal. He's a bank robber. Now, can he change? Sure, he can repent and go to heaven. You're not making it a judgment by calling him a criminal. Don't judge me, brother. Well, that's not what this is about. God is the ultimate one who will judge you. But your actions right now are not good, right? And so we looked at that last week. But notice in verse 15, Jesus says, beware of false prophets. So this whole section, 15 through 20, is really in the context of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing like this cute little guy here. <laughs> what is a false prophet? Deuteronomy, it tells us. Deuteronomy says, in, verse eight, in chapter 18, beginning in verse 15, it says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, Moses telling the children of Israel, from your brethren, him you shall hear according to all that, that all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, and, and here Moses is recounting what God had told him. He says, what they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren. Now, who is this ultimately going to be? Jesus Christ. This is a prophecy of Jesus Christ, of him not only being our Savior, but he's also our king, he's also our high priest, but guess what? He's also our, he is a prophet, Jesus is. And he shall speak to them all the words that I command him. And it shall be that whosoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. But the, and here it is. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks, and here God gives him the answer. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken, which makes sense because if God is omniscient and he's omnipotent, he knows all things, he's in all places at once, he can't be hoodwinked. He knows exactly what's going to happen before it even happens. And it's true. 
Whatever that prophet speaks, if it doesn't come to pass, that is the thing that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. And what does it tell us? So what, what it's basically saying is that a false prophet is someone who presumes to speak a word in God's name, which God has not commanded them to speak. It is also someone who speaks in the name of another God. Remember that. Speaks in the name of another God because somebody can speak and claim that it's God, but if it's not the Jesus of the Bible, it's another God. It's a whole different God. It doesn't matter. So someone who speaks in the name of other gods, not according to the revealed word of God or the character or the nature of God and his son, Jesus Christ. A false prophet also speaks things that are false, things that aren't true, making predictions that don't come to pass. And history is littered with individuals who have made predictions, uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, so many people, so many different religions, even Christians have made predictions about things that have not come to pass and they are not true. They're not, they're they're false. Another way to determine if someone is a false prophet uh, or a wolf in sheep's clothing is to look closely at what they eat. When a so-called sheep no longer eats the same thing as other sheep, but begins to salivate as they look at other sheep, you have a wolf in your midst, (laughs) Right? They're deceivers. They're con artists. If that wolf will not be converted, then he needs to be driven away or dealt with. Now, we have some friends who live out in the, in the boondocks a little bit, and they have a, a chicken coop, and it's actually uh, enclosed and everything. And at night, the coyotes, foxes, and I think there's even wolves out there, will try to come and break into their chicken coop at night. And that aggressor may get shot by the owner of that chicken coop. He's coming after the chickens. The wolf, the coyote, the fox, coming to eat the chicken, or chickens, is going to have a come-to-meet-in time with Uncle Glock, or his two brothers, his famous brothers, Smith and Wesson, or his brother, Remington, or his cousin, Winchester, twice removed on his mother's side. That wolf, that fox, that coyote is going to come to meet in with one of those brothers, And it's not going to be good. Now, we, of course, are not to shoot false prophets, but we are to get them out of the church, and we are to warn the church about them and to encourage them not to follow them, not to listen to them. That's part of what a pastor does. That's part of what a shepherd does. He warns, he protects, and when possible, he'll he'll kick out um, false uh, prophets, wolves in sheep's clothing, even wolfettes in sheep's clothing. But there were false prophets in the, and teachers in the Old Testament as well. In 1 Kings chapter 22, there's a, it's recorded for us, and, and you might as well go there really quick. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 21, 22, excuse me. And it's an event in the life of Ahab, the king of Israel. Ahab had a piece of land on the eastern side of the Jordan River that belonged to Israel, but now the king of Assyria had taken possession of it. And so Ahab, the king of Israel, talks to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, and says, will you come against, will you come with me and go against the king of Assyria? And, and, and Jehoshaphat, unfortunately, agrees to do it. 
But before doing that, Jehoshaphat said, hey, you know, we should probably seek the Lord and see if, the, if, if God is in this. So Ahab seeks out his prophets, and they all tell him, yeah, go up. The Lord's going to deliver it into your hand. Go ahead and go up. Everything's going to be fine. You guys are going to be victorious. And then Jehoshaphat said, is there not still a prophet of the Lord here? This is in verse 7. That we may inquire of him. Is there another prophet here that's, that's uh, <laughs> and I think Jehoshaphat knew that there was. So they sent and they, they brought a guy named Micaiah, the son of Imlah, and they inquired of him. And uh, the king of Israel didn't want Micaiah to prophesy because he hated him because he never prophesied any good for him. And the reason was is because he wasn't a good king. If he did good things, there'd be good, there'd be good, the prophet wouldn't even be necessary. So they bring Micaiah, they go fetch him, and in the meantime, Zedekiah, not the prophet, the son of Chenaniah, he made horns of iron for himself, and this is in verse 11, and he says, Thus says the Lord, with these you shall gore the Syrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied as well, saying, Go up to Ramoth-Gilead and prosper. The Lord will deliver it into your hands. And so finally they bring Micaiah, uh, into the presence of the king. And then the king, verse 15, says, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth, or shall we refrain? And he answered him, go and prosper. The Lord's going to give it to you. But he was saying it tongue-in-cheek because he was being encouraged by the others to fall in line with the rest of the prophets. And so he said, yeah, go. You're going to be great. You're going to prosper. You're going to do great. And then the king says, how many times shall I make you swear to me to, to, that you tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And so finally, Micaiah says, well, here it is. I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord says they have no master. And so Micaiah basically uh, prophesies a complete disaster for the king. And then in verse 19, it says, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, Micaiah said. He said, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will persuade Ahab to go up that, we, that he may fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And so one spoke in this manner, another spoke in that manner. Verse 21, Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and says, I will persuade him. And the Lord said to him, In what way? So he said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And the Lord says, you shall persuade him, and you also shall prevail. Go out and do so. Therefore, look, Micaiah says, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of these prophets of yours, and the Lord has declared disaster against you. And so Zedekiah, this prophet who had prophesied that everything will go well, he comes up and he slaps Micaiah and across the face. And so the king of Israel said, Take Micaiah and return him to Amnon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, and say, Thus says the king, Put this fellow in prison and feed him with bread of affliction and water of affliction until I come back in peace. And notice what Micaiah said. If you return in peace, then the Lord has not spoken by me. Take heed, all you people. And that's exactly what happened. But notice how there was a plethora of false prophets, and there was one guy who stood against the tide speaking the truth of God. And that's usually the way it is, unfortunately. It's usually one guy, not the whole entire church of God, saying, yes, it's, you know, oftentimes it's just the remnant, the one. And Micaiah was one of those. And Jesus, even Peter and Paul, they warned us of false prophets as well. Matthew 
In Matthew's gospel, Jesus warned us, remember, in the Olivet Discourse, the, or the disciples were going on about how beautiful the temple and everything was, and Jesus said, all of this stuff is going to be torn down. And they said, when is this going to happen? When are these things going to be? And, and Jesus, the first thing out of his mouth, he said, take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And see, this is what a false prophet does. A false prophet will come in the name of Christ. He will purport things of God or purport things of the word of God that are patently wrong and untrue. And throughout the history of the church, there have been many deceivers, false prophets, false teachers. We wouldn't have enough time to list them, but we know some of them. You know, Jim Jones down in Guyana back in the 60, late 60s, early 70s. David Koresh, remember, I think it was like in 1980-something. And the list goes on and on. But Second Peter chapter 2, in the first 19 verses, and we're not going to read those uh, verses uh, this morning, but I'm going to summarize them because he brings these characteristics of false teachers. One of them is that they bring in destructive heresies into the church, things that are just patently wrong, defying the nature and the character of God. They deny the Lord. They deny that he is the Son of God. They blaspheme the Lord, speaking evil of him. They are covetousness. They, they desire and they want things, and they want to frisk you down for all the money that you have so that their, their ministry can grow and be big and prosperous. He also wants to exploit individuals with deceptive words. A false teacher or a false prophet will walk in the lust of their flesh, having eyes full of adultery. Just they're, they're, they're just given over to the flesh. And you watch their life long enough, and then you find out on the news that they've, they've been cheating on their income taxes, that they're doing this or doing that. They're, they're going away on vacations with their secretaries, and nobody knows about it. And all of these kinds of things happen, and, and these are false teachers and false prophets. And they despise authority. They have no accountability. They reject any accountability whatsoever. So they despise authority. They're presumptuous, self-willed. It's only about them and their image and what they want to project. And they're not afraid to speak evil or falsely of heavenly powers or authorities, blaspheming God and the angels and making fun of them. I've seen some horrific things, even some worship leaders talking of, you know, speaking of God in such an irreverent fashion and pastors and women pastors who shouldn't be pastoring. It's not that they're not good. It's not that they can't teach, but that God has given them a role. But we've had over the years individuals that even came into this church and they really weren't interested in getting saved. They weren't interested in continuing in their uh, being fed in the word and growing in their fellowship here. But they were here to draw away disciples for themselves. They were here to confuse people over certain doctrines, being divisive and combative. We've had that happen. And we've had to talk to individuals. And some individuals, we had to just tell them, listen, you can't come back here. You can't come back. And although false prophets and teachers can be women, many and most of them are single men. Many of them are single men or married men, and they try to lure women into their web. They lavish compliments on them, desiring to isolate them by inviting them to their Bible study that they're hosting, and only for the young woman to show up and find, interestingly enough, that no one was there for the Bible study except for her and this host of the Bible study. Oh, must be a coincidence. 
But such is the nature of a false prophet and a false teacher. They allure, they allure. There's an individual governing our state who visited a church in Brooklyn on September 26, 2021, at the Cultural Christian Center. It's a mega church of about 40,000 people. And uh, she had this to say about those who were hesitant on getting the COVID vaccination. She had made a mandate. Everybody had to be vaccinated. If you were in in any kind of work whatsoever, you were mandated to do it or you were going to lose your job. So getting frustrated, she goes to the churches, and I just want to share this with you. This is what she said. We are not through this pandemic. I wished we were, but I prayed a lot to God during this time. And you know what? God did answer our prayers. He made the smartest men and women, the scientists, the doctors, the researchers, he made them come up with a vaccine. That is from God to us. And we must say, thank you, God. Thank you. And I wear my vaccinated necklace all the time to say, I'm vaccinated. All of you. Yes, I know you're vaccinated. You're the smart ones. But you know there's people out there who aren't listening to God and what God wants. You know this. You know who they are. I need you to be my apostles. I need you to go out and talk about it and say, we owe this to each other. We love each other. Jesus taught us to love one another. Pretty interesting. I want you to be my apostles. God wants you to do it. God wants you to do this. She wasn't speaking on God's behalf. God did not call her to speak for him concerning this. I believe that and I know that. What she spoke wasn't true. The vaccine wasn't and isn't a true vaccine. We know that now, and it didn't even keep people from getting the virus, and it didn't keep it from spreading. If she was speaking for God, the vaccine would have been effective, but it hasn't been, and the powers that be uh, have, have been suppressing the truth and hiding it from us. And those things are true. She invoked God and belittled others for choosing not to take it. She replaced medical doctors who wouldn't take the vaccine with members of the National Guard. And then thousands in New York City and thousands of others all around New York State, a few in this room here this morning with us, they lost their jobs because they didn't take the vaccine. But she's going to invoke God. She's not speaking for God. On October 2nd, about 11 days ago, our governor made an announcement at Judson Memorial Church in New York City, and the governor announced a $13.4 million was awarded in this second round of the Abortion Provider Support Fund, and this is what she had to uh, say. Well, this is the next stop on the journey to let the nation know that this is the state of New York, and we will protect abortion. She's a woman's about. right to a safe and legal abortion. It's happening here in our state. <laughs> to Abigail and Jacqueline, thank you for sharing that story, that history that shows the courage of the early congregants of Judson Memorial at a time when abortion was actually illegal in the state of New York. It became legal three years ahead of Roe v. Wade, but this was 1967, three years before it was legal even in our state. So that is the courage 
of these social justice actions taken by churches all across America, whether it was the right for civil rights, the rights for women's rights, or rights to women's autonomy over their bodies. So I commend you and to everyone involved in this congregation for inspiring us and letting us know that God is out there on our side as we continue to make sure that women have the rights that they are, that are God-given rights, as you mentioned. So thank you very much. So a God-given right to abort a child. And thank you for being on our side. God is on our side. This couldn't be worse than, uh, I can't imagine. She invoked the Lord, used the pulpit in the, this, this church in Brooklyn, not only to misrepresent God and his word, but then sharing this with people in the pews uh, to further her radical left agenda. This is false, and it's blasphemous. And yes, please pray for her. Seriously, pray for her. God calls us to do that. Pray for our governor. Pray for those in authority over us. It's important. But not only are there false prophets and false teachers outside the church, but they also have come within the church. We know this. In Acts chapter 20, what does it tell us? Paul, speaking to the elders, uh, uh, warning the elders at Ephesus in verse 28 of Acts 20, he says this. He says, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the flock of God, which he, or the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So Paul is like, his heart is breaking. He says, my departure is near, and when I leave, they're going to come in. Men from within the church are going to rise up and speak blasphemous things, false prophets and false teachers. And, uh, you know, this next video I'm going to show you, it's very short, but it's a video of Joel Olstein saying that being a person of faith is all that matters to get into heaven, regardless of what religion you belong to. I'm going to have a vote uh, for the Republican nominee for president. Uh, the leading candidate is a Mormon, Governor Romney. Tell me how you see Mormonism, his religion, and how you define it within the Christian community. Well, you know, what I see about Governor Romney is that he says, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, he's raised from the dead, and, you know, he's my Savior. Well, I see him as being a believer in Christ like me. And that's I, enough for you? Yeah, that's enough for me. I mean, there's differences in all religion. I, I realize Mormonism is different from Christianity, but you know what? He's a man of faith and values, and to me, that's, that's strong. What do you think about that? Is he speaking the truth? No, he's not. There are many other, and I, I just, that's the last one I'm going to show you today. But denying Christ and saying that all roads, you know, all roads ultimately lead to God, that's basically what he's saying. He's just, he's a man of faith. Whether you're a Hindu, a, a person of faith, or a Mormon, that's a false prophet. That is a false teacher. This is not good, folks. And yet, they're all around. And there's a famine in the world, in the United States, for the true word of God. We need to get back to this. 
We need to get back to the old paths. What does it tell us in Jeremiah? He says, thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. Also, I set watchmen over you saying, listen to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not listen. Therefore, hear you nations and know, O congregation, what is among them. Hear, O earth, behold, I will certainly bring calamity on this people the fruit of their thoughts because they have not heeded my words nor my law but they've rejected it and so God calls us to be careful to listen to his word to obey him and to stay on that narrow path which is everlasting life with Jesus Christ that's what we need to do is we need to stay on that narrow path Don't listen to the false prophets and the false teachers. And believe me, YouTube and everything is filled with them. Even on TBN. False teachers, false prophets. Back in our text now in verse 16, Jesus says, Well, you'll know false prophets. You'll know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? The obvious answer is no. You get apples from an apple tree. You get oranges from an orange tree. The tree bears the fruit from what it was really in on the inside. Whatever's in on the inside is what comes out. Kind begets kind. Doesn't it tell us that in Genesis? That's why you will never see a monkey giving birth to a wallaby or a stingray giving birth to a black-tipped shark. You won't see it. And the wolf or the false prophet eventually reveals who they really are because they can only disguise themselves for so long. Like that sheep and that wolf in sheep's clothing that I showed you earlier. Eventually it becomes known and you find out really what they are. So Jesus goes on and says, Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And see, it is God's desire that we abide in him and that we bear much fruit. In fact, in John chapter 15, and I'm just going to get down to verse 5, Jesus said, I am the vine. He wants you to bear fruit. Because a good tree bears good fruit. If you got the Spirit of God in you, you are a believer in Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, notice, bears much fruit. But without me, you can do nothing. And if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and they throw them into the fire and they are burned. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified. Notice, how is the Father glorified? That you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. So I think fruit is something that the Lord is looking for. And he's looking for in you and I. Because you and I have been born of his spirit if you're a child of God. And that fruit, that spirit of God that's in you is going to manifest itself outwardly, right? That's what a tree does. That's what a a seed does when you plant it in the ground. Eventually, that seed dies and it begins to germinate. And then next thing you know, a little sproutling comes out. Then next thing you know, it gets a little bit bigger and another sprout, another sprout. Pretty soon, you've got big, beautiful apples growing on that tree. And wow, it's an apple tree. Yes, because an apple seed was planted. (laughs) And so you and I, 
We can know them by their fruits. This word know in verse 20 in our text is, is the word epigonosco, which means to recognize or become fully acquainted with. That's what Jesus is saying. Therefore, by the, their fruits, these false prophets and these false teachers, you will know them. You'll become acquainted with them. And this is not judging, but knowing them by their fruits. And fruit take, takes a while to produce. It takes a while for it to mature and to reveal itself. But notice in our text now, verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, notice, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Notice what he says there. He who does, not just the one who talks about it. See, I can talk about it all I want, but if it's not evident in my life, people have a right not to listen to me. Because if I don't do what I believe, then it proves that I really don't believe it, right? So it's not enough to just talk the talk. We need to walk the walk as well. And pray for me, because often I have to preach and I have to teach about things that I'm still growing in, things that are even beyond me still that I've got to share with you out of faith because I'm not quite there yet. It's going to take time for me as it is you, because we're all growing in this together, aren't we? And so it's going to take time. So pray for me and let's pray for one another that we would walk in that. In Philippians, uh, what does it tell us? For it is God who works in you both to will and then to do of his good pleasure. First to will, Lord, I'm willing. And then he's like, okay, great, the battle's over now. All I got to do is show you what to do because I'm willing. I'm willing to do it. In James, Jesus' half-brother in chapter 1, verse 22, he says, Be doers of the word of God, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. See, I deceive myself when I listen to these things in the word of God and I decide, well, I'm just going to handpick the things that I like and the things that I don't like. And what happens is I deceive myself because I'm claiming to do them, I'm claiming to believe in them, but I'm not doing them. And there's the rub. There's the problem. And see, that's why God wants us to be doers of the word. And it's not our doing that justifies us. No, it's our faith in God. It's our faith in God. Samuel, in 1 Samuel 15, Samuel upbraiding Saul for his lack of obedience in wiping out the Amalekites as the Lord commanded him, but he kept back some of it. And then finally, Saul's like, well, I did the will of the Lord. I did the will of the Lord. And Samuel's like, no, you didn't. God told you to go the whole distance, and you didn't go the whole distance. You didn't completely do what God wanted you to do. And so Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. You could bring all the stuff you want, but you were being disobedient. No, you have to do what God says. In 2 Kings, we've been looking at this in, um, uh, on Thursday nights, and I would encourage you to come Thursday nights. We're in the Old Testament, and by the way, the Old Testament is still part of the Bible. I don't know if you knew that, but the Old Testament is just as important as the New Testament. It's all the Word of God. And so if you're only coming on Sunday mornings, you're only getting half of it. Come Thursday nights. I love Thursday nights, and I love getting into the Old Testament because there's so much in there that it's all the same. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But in 2 Kings, you remember chapter 5, Naaman, who was this uh, general of Syria, he was a well-renowned man, a great warrior. He came down with leprosy, and so finally... Uh, he goes to the king of Syria, and, 
and uh, tells him about this. Of course, the king knew about this. And there was a a young Hebrew slave who was working or or serving as a slave for the king of, of, of Syria. And this young Hebrew girl said, I know of a prophet back in Israel that can heal Naaman. And so the king goes, great. He loads up some mules, some people, a bunch of gold, a bunch of silver, and some changes of clothing. He says, go down to Samaria and talk to this, you know, this king. And so, so finally, Naaman went with his horses, and this is in 2 Kings 5, verse 9. So Naaman went with his horses and chariot, and he stood outside of the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times. There's your prescription. He didn't even come out of his house. He sent a messenger. I mean, think of that. Here's, here's this man with all the pomp and ceremony. He's on his horse. He's got all of his guys. He's got a load of gold and silver and, and clothing he's going to give to this prophet if he could heal him. And the prophet doesn't even come outside. He's probably in there by the fire, you know, with his Bible open. And just tell him to go wash in the Jordan seven times and he'll be healed. Go tell him. And Naaman's outside, what? Do you know who? Do you, do you know who I am? I'm Naaman. I'm the commander. I'm like the, the, the big shot. And now you send me a messenger? You send me a tweet? You send me a text? Go wash in the Jordan seven times. <laughs> and so, but Naaman becomes furious. He went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord as God and wave his hand over the place that had leprosy and heal the leprosy. Are not the Abana and the Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, aren't they better than all the waters of Israel? And they were. In the natural, I mean, those, water, those two rivers were up there right at the base of Mount Hermon, clear as crystal, cold as ice, flowing down from the mountain. And then the Jordan River, about 100 miles south of that, is kind of muddied and not so clean. And you're telling me to go in the Jordan and wash and I'll be clean? <laughs> and notice, so... Um, So he turned away and he left in a rage and his servants came near and spoke to him and said, my father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then? Uh, How much more then? So he says, go down there and, and wash and be clean. And so he did. He went seven times, dipped himself in the muddy water of the Jordan. And he became clean. And his, his body was like, his flesh was like that of a child again. But what was it? He obeyed. He didn't just hear. He heard it, and he didn't like it. So he was about ready to leave, and thank God his servant says, hey, if he would have asked you to climb a tree and, 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 and spout the Hebrew alphabet in reverse, wouldn't you have done it? Okay, I'll do it. So even in a half-hearted way, he goes down to the Jordan. He dips seven times, and behold... After he's obedient to the Lord, after he listens, his heart wasn't even completely in it. Can you see how wonderful God is? He responds to obedience even when our faith is struggling, but he did it, and he was healed. Do you see? And that's why Jesus said, you know, people can tell me, Lord, Lord. He's like, no, unless they do, it's important that you do. And yet it's not those works that save us. We know that. In Ephesians 2, it tells us, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship. Notice, we are created in Christ Jesus for what? For bad works? No, for good works. 
See, it's totally backwards from the way the world thinks. The world thinks, do good works, you get to heaven. God says, no, I've already done everything for you. Believe in me, and then as a result of my spirit dwelling in you, you're going to do the good works. But you're not justified by your works. You're justified by faith. Right? James says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. And he says, show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Wow. A true, genuine faith will produce good works of obedience to God. So verse 22, back in our text, so Jesus says, Many of you will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many works in your names, and he will declare, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You see, God does care about the true, genuine relationship that we have with him more than anything that we might do for him. In fact, um, as far as I can tell, there are only three judgments of unbelievers that are still yet future. The first one is the obvious one, when Christ comes back to the earth at his second coming, and that's, and that's where the armies of Armageddon are going to be formed. And this is recorded for us in Revelation 19, and also in Zechariah 14, brings this out very clearly. And then there's a second judgment, and this is at the beginning of the millennial reign, not too long after that, that Jesus' second coming where there will be a judgment of the sheep and the goats, and it's recorded for us in Matthew 25. And finally, we know that unbelievers will be judged at the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20, verse 11 through 15. But I believe that what Jesus is speaking here is this second option here, where um, at the beginning of the millennial reign, there's going to be a judgment of the sheep and the goats. In other words, a judgment of the nations, of those who were supporting Israel and those who did not, those who believed in him and those who did not. And they'll be judging then. But notice, and you can read Matthew 25, uh, specifically verses 31 through 46, and you will see... um, that passage that speaks of that, I believe. But Jesus goes on in verse 24 and he says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And notice again, this sounds like verse 21 in, in the same chapter. What was verse 21? He says, But he who does the will of God, um, um, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of, of my Father. Notice the responsibility that comes to us with hearing the word of God. There is a responsibility. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, we call this the Shema, and I'll share with you why in a minute. But in verse 1, it says, Now this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, you and your son and your grandson, all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Therefore, hear. (laughs) Therefore, hear, O Israel. The word hear in the Hebrew is shema. 
And it means hear with the intent of doing something about it. It's not content with just hearing only. No, you're supposed to hear, and, and that's the word he uses here. Listen with the intent of obeying it. And he goes on, he says, Therefore hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. And then in verse 4, Hear, O Israel, there's our word Shema again. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Here, with the intention of doing something about it. Romans 10 verse 17 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. And although we are saved by grace through faith and justified by faith in Jesus Christ, our faith ought to be worked out in practical means. And by doing so, we prove that it's genuine. And God proves that it's genuine. Genuine faith moves to action, or at least ought to. But Jesus Christ, he is the chief cornerstone. He's speaking of these foundations that anyone who builds upon this rock, I will liken him to a man who has built his hand on stone, on bedrock, and see, Jesus is the chief cornerstone. In Matthew 21, Jesus speaking to the chief priests and the elders of the people concerning their rejection of him, he says, Have you not read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? And this was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say unto you, the kingdom of heaven will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind them to powder. Jesus is the cornerstone. And you know this, for any of you who are masons or you build a house, they lay a footer at the very beginning of the foundation. And they lay that masonry brick and they make sure that it's plumbed, that the ground is plumbed, that it's, everything is just right. And that, that first brick is critical. That's the, that's the cornerstone. It's going to be the corner of the whole thing. And if that thing is off by just a little bit, the whole thing will be off. And so they scrutinize. They get out the plumb bob. They get out the, the everything. They measure it and make sure. And they set that thing in the dirt. And then they begin to build off of that cornerstone. And see, Jesus is that cornerstone. He's that cornerstone. He's the cornerstone of our faith. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter tells us this. He says that Jesus Christ is a living stone. Yes, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God. And notice, precious. You also, he speaks to us as living stones. You're a living stone. Did you know that? So when somebody calls me a hardhead, now I can say, well, I qualify because I'm a living stone. You are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it's also contained in the scripture, behold, I lay in Zion, and here he's quoting, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Jesus is our cornerstone. The Apostle Paul also speaks of us 
being the, you know, that the foundation that he laid. This is in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 9 through 15. He talks about the foundation. There's no other foundation that can be laid than that which is laid already, and that is Jesus Christ. And then he says, I want to build on that foundation. That foundation is sure and it's precious. And I, I think it's really wonderful that as we look at the end of the age, that even in the new Jerusalem, in the new heavens, and the new earth, the new Jerusalem that God is going to make, what does he make out of the, the very foundation, the very foundation of the new Jerusalem is going to be 12 foundations, and each of them are going to be labeled after one of the names of the apostles. These living stones, sure, because they were founded upon the rock of Christ himself. So these foundations, you can read that in Revelation 21, verses 9 through 21. We don't have time to go there. But the foundation. And you and I, because we belong to him, will be represented by those 12 apostles. And even the 12 um, uh, the 12 tribes of Israel, they'll be named after the 12 gates in that new Jerusalem. So you have Israel and even the church made up of Jew and Gentile, all represented there in the foundation and the gates of this new Jerusalem. So Jesus, in verse 25, back in our text, he says, and, and, he says, and the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall because it was founded on the rock it was founded on the rock. Where is your life? Where is it? What is it founded upon? Is it founded upon the truth of Jesus Christ? Or is it founded upon something you learn from a professor at a university saying, no, that's just a bunch of folklore. That's just a bunch of stuff that's been handed down over the centuries. No, these were written by eyewitness accounts. The gospels are eyewitness accounts. And the Bible was written by men as they received it from God. And it has been proven itself to be accurate, 100%. Are you going to build your life upon the rock of Christ? Or are you going to build it upon philosophy of the day? Are you going to build it upon the things of today? Are you going to build it upon politics? Hey, listen, this whole world is going to burn. And everything in it is going to go away. But there's one thing that stands and lasts forever, and that is the Word of God. It says that in the Bible. The Word of God endures forever. Everything else, Peter tells us, and Jesus told us, it's going to be dissolved with fervent heat. Only that which abides in Christ is going to last, and you and I will be changed, and we will live in that new Jerusalem at the end for eternity, and it'll never end. And see, that is the truth. I don't care what anyone else says, because I'm building my life on this. I'm not going to build my life on what some professor has told me. Believe me, I've been to grad school. I've been to you know, college in my four-year degree and went to Eastman later on. You know what? They've told me nothing about this. In fact, they tried to discourage me from this. But this is the one thing that's going to get me to heaven. Jesus Christ. Believing in him. Everything in here from Genesis to Revelation. Nothing else. Nothing else. You know, during um, Hurricane Ian down in Florida, I've seen, you've all seen the pictures and the videos, and I saw uh, down on Fort Myers Beach, there was houses, there were houses that were completely devastated, and there were other houses here and there, 
spattered around like this that were intact completely. And they began looking at those houses. And the reason those houses weren't demolished by the storm is because they were built on cement pilings. They were built with concrete. The foundations were concrete. The pilings that the thing was up on, the stilts, was concrete. And, and every, the, the foundation was concrete. And the winds blew and the winds came and, and blew away every, all their neighbors. But yet those houses still remain intact today. And the lesson was obvious to me. <laughs> There was, a, there was a Bible story, there was a Bible study in that lesson when I saw that video and I saw those houses, I saw it with my own eyes. I didn't have time to bring it up here and I didn't want to waste any more time. But you know what? Those houses that were founded upon the rock, and of course we're talking about an earthly rock, concrete, but even more so how firm is Jesus' foundation, the blood of Christ. And that's what we build our life on. That's what I want to build my life. It's what I've been building my life on. And God willing, God help me, I want to continue to build my life upon Jesus Christ, the rock of our salvation. Amen? Amen. And I pray that you do too. I pray that you love him with all of your heart. Get to know him. Serve him. And don't be misled by anyone. Pastor, teacher, professor, no. Don't be misled by anybody. That's why it's so important. That's why we've been harping so long. Know the Word of God. Get into the Word of God. Know it. Read it daily. Study it. And I've been doing this for the last, I don't know, uh, 26 years, something like that. Uh, I don't know. I got saved when I was 24. I had to do the math. I don't know, 27 years. But, you know, I've been doing this, and I've been loving it, and I've been finding out who I really am, and I'm finding out who God really is and what he has done for me, and it's broken my heart. Because I realized I was worthy of hell. But he saved me, and now I'm heaven-bound. I'm going to heaven. Are you going to heaven? Because you put your faith in him, that's your only ticket. By grace, through faith, and that not of works, lest any man should boast. Because we would if we could. Well, look what I've done. I've given a million dollars to the church. And they've built this beautiful foundation. It's even got my name on the front. It's got a little plaque up front. And, you know, I didn't die yet, so I can't say immemorial of Rob Kellogg. Here stands the, the edifice that Rob Kellogg has donated to the church. <gasps> no. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Build your life upon Christ. Build it upon him. Jesus said in verse 26, But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them, he will be likened to a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and Hurricane Ian came and washed it all away. Now, it doesn't mean, uh, just a qualifier here, I'm not saying that those people whose houses washed away, that they didn't, you know, many Christians lost their houses. But it's just the thought, the idea behind it. And unfortunately, because the codes now are so uh, different now to withstand those hurricanes and the ones who had those, followed those codes and were newer houses and they built the things on concrete, on the rock, if you will, figuratively, they lasted, but the others didn't. That's all I'm saying about that. But great were the winds that blew and that beat on that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And again, so important that us that we take and put our trust and our faith, give your whole life over to Jesus. Build upon the rock. You'll never be disappointed. And if the worship team could come on up, we're going to take communion in just a few seconds here. 
but give your heart to Jesus. And what a wonderful way to end our morning together by taking communion together. If you believe in Jesus Christ, that he died for your sin, and you've become a believer in Christ, then by all means take communion. Because by taking these elements, you're basically testifying the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you don't believe in his death or his resurrection, then I would encourage you not to take communion because you don't believe it. But if you do believe it, then take it. Because when we take that bread, we are acknowledging his body that was broken for us. When we take the cup, we are acknowledging the blood that he shed on behalf of us, taking our penalty of our sin. He did all of that for me and you. And I am so glad to be called a Christian, a Christ one. And I pray that my life, because it's built on that foundation, I pray for myself and for all of you today that we would do the same and that our lives would be a wonderful reflection of Jesus Christ who indwells us, whose spirit dwells inside. And if you're not born again this morning, I would encourage you, even in the quietness, as, we, as the worship team is, is worshiping, just simply do this. If you're not one of Christ, or maybe you're curious, just say, Lord, and we're not going to make a big spectacle. We're not going to embarrass you. But you do it in the privacy of your own thoughts and just say, Lord, I am a sinner. I know that I've sinned. And I know, Jesus, that you paid the price for my sin. Your blood on the cross, none else, no one else. No one has ever claimed to die for my sin but you because you're almighty God in the flesh. That's what the Bible says, does it not? And therefore, I can trust in him. I can trust in him. So, as, they, uh, as the worship team worships, when you're ready, just come on up and take the elements and bring it back to your uh, chair and we'll take it together, okay? Paul the Apostle in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, speaking to the Corinthians, he says in verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus came on the same night in which he was betrayed, and he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Notice, do this in remembrance of me. So let's do that. In verse 25 it goes on and it says, In the same manner he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Of me, And he says, for often as you drink of this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And that's what we do. It's a symbolic thing of what Jesus has done. So let's go ahead and take the cup, acknowledging the blood of Christ. Praise the Lord. Lord, you are the King of glory, and Lord, we exalt your name this morning. We exalt your name, Lord, throughout the day and every day, every as we, as we live, Lord, may we exalt the name of Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.